What's up, Epic Film fans? This is Loy Sauce coming at you solo this evening. Justin's off eating a double cheese with a certain filthy hobo. But I have with me a very special guest, two very special guests, actually, indeed. Uh, they are the co-directors of a brand new must-see documentary called The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story. So ladies and gentlemen and everyone listening, may I introduce Scott Barber and Adam Sweeney. Scott, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. We're, yeah, we're really great. Yeah, we're grateful to be here. We're so glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for your time. Uh, first of all, I just want to say congratulations on the film. Uh, on a personal note, the day that I watched The Orange Years, I was in a real foul mood, just thinking about some personal things going on in my life right now, and I was very grumpy until I watched your film. And I found I had just had a huge grin slapped across my face because, you know, here I am with Nickelodeon being a big part of my childhood, as it was for millions of other kids of a certain age group, and revisiting all these memories of all these great shows. I mean, I was watching Nick around the time when shows like SpongeBob SquarePants and Hey Arnold and The Amanda Show were, were running, but I caught all these 90s Nick shows in, in reruns, and watching the documentary, it was like a walk down nostalgia lane, and it just instantly turned my mood around. So um, thank you for sharing it with me. Yeah, well, thank you. Like Scott and I have talked and, you know, I, I think for every project, you kind of identify what your goal is, like what your ultimate goal is. Like, let's walk away, you know, if we can accomplish these things and we've done it. And so really what Scott and I said always is we we kind of had three goals really was to like, you know, um, tell, tell a, a positive story about Nickelodeon. Uh, to learn the story behind the story, uh, which ultimately was about Geraldine Laybourne. And then maybe most importantly is if, if we can help people smile and give people some optimism, then uh, we then hopefully we did our job uh, in telling a story that shaped our childhoods also. We knew that, you know, this was a kind of a different sort of documentary and that it's very positive and uplifting. It's not uh you know dissect it's not exploring a seedy underbelly of anything you know so it's a little bit of an outlier in terms of like the style of documentary filmmaking that's kind of really popular right now uh so it means a lot to us when people say that because that's exactly what we wanted to do was just bring you know bring some joy to people you know and entertain people and also uh give credit to people that we really felt weren't getting the credit that they deserve and, and it also it means a lot when when people say that that necessarily they didn't quite grow up with the shows that we're talking about when people that are either a little bit older or a little bit younger because that that's one of the biggest compliments that I think we can get because we know it's not just the nostalgia talking we when someone's like oh I didn't I didn't grow up on these shows but I still like the doc that's like one of the best things that we can hear absolutely well you talked about your goals I think you met all of those goals exceedingly well with this. So for the listeners who may not be aware of this documentary, uh, could you provide kind of an elevator pitch of The Orange Years and what it's all about? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, The Orange Years is chronicling the early years of the Nickelodeon network from its inception as a very small local network all the way until it became a bona fide juggernaut, the moment it became equal to Disney and PBS. And we really highlight the work 
of Geraldine Laybourne, who was just an absolute visionary, a trailblazer, who was really all those shows in the 80s and 90s. She was behind all of them. This one person was responsible for so much of your childhood. So we're really showing the amazing out of the box thinking that she did. Uh, just on a personal note, can you recall your first exposure to Nickelodeon? Like where and when you may have seen your first episode? Or do you have any specific memories attached to certain shows? I think for me, the most vivid memories that I have, even though I watched it earlier, the most vivid memories really were whenever uh, Scott and my friendship started. Uh, kind of the backstory of, 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 of our friendship is we've known each other since fourth grade and we became best friends during middle school. And so I remember vividly talking to Scott about how uh, the Halloween episodes of Salute Your Shorts and Are You Afraid of the Dark, the original episode. Uh, we moved away. My family moved away. Uh, and, and Scott and I stayed friends because we watched Nickelodeon together. And so I just remember that vividly. Right. And so uh, it's it's really cool to see to to see other people connect with that, you know, because you're, it, it just reminds you like how big this world is, but how small it is whenever it comes to how the things that we share and that we hold dear to our hearts. Yeah, that I agree. I, the same thing, like Adam and I would watch SNCC, you know, that was a big one for us because we were that perfect age, you know, SNCC was geared towards kids that were like almost not kids anymore. You know, that the very last evolution of being a kid before you kind of go off and become a dumb teenager. And, <laughs> and we, uh, so, I mean, we have these vivid, fond memories of watching SNCC together, either in person or where we would be on the phone talking about it or talking about it afterward. And that was really special. And then it was special for us to then, when we were making this documentary, to hear that, I mean, it really was every, it wasn't just me and him. It was like all kids all across the world doing this same thing at the same time. We all had this kind of like unifying experience of Saturday night sitting on the big orange couch uh, watching these shows and experiencing the same thing. So it's kind of cool for our those kids of a certain age to have that same memory. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. What was the point that you decided, let's make a documentary about this? Scott and I had been working on stories before this. We had written a couple of other scripts. Uh, we had had, you know, some relative success, like a couple had been sold off, but uh, we hadn't seen one all the way through. We also had worked together on many documentaries um, with at, at our, our jobs. Uh, and so we had been throwing around some ideas uh, back and forth about some community things. We had talked about, uh, and, and we ultimately decided, you know, it's, it's time to take our destiny into our own hands. Uh, if we keep handing these things off, then maybe they'll see the light of day. They're amazing filmmakers everywhere. But uh, it, the likelihood gets tougher every, every time that you add more people into it. And so uh, we kept throwing around ideas, and one of them was Nickelodeon. And we came back to it, and uh, we decided this, this might be the one. We Googled. We did some research about it. No one, surprisingly, had done any, uh, any of it. Uh, there had been a couple of books, and, but no one had done documentary about it. And so we knew that that was the most affordable way to make a film. Uh, and so we decided uh, we were comfortable doing nearly, I mean, we didn't do everything. Let's be, let's be clear. There are um, dozens of people, a hundred uh, really that helped out with this, but 
really once we did the crowdfund and we were able to be successful with that by emulating the Nickelodeon stories that we that we came to love that's when we thought that we had something especially when we touched on what Scott talked about Geraldine Layborn and I think whenever you know Scott and I found that out that was whenever we were like okay like we talk about the idea of these aren't empty calories this is going to be a story that has some weight to it uh, and, you know, I, uh, Scott can talk about it a lot. I'm, I'm sure about there are these amazing visionaries that were doing this, especially a lot of women in a time when that was just unheard of. Uh, you know, 2020 it doesn't happen uh, incredibly often, especially in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Uh, so for Jerry and Vanessa Coffey and Ann Sweeney and go, so on and so forth, and I'll hand it over to Scott. But for them to do that, that was just very inspiring uh, for us as creators also. Yeah, their story really like th their story is what became the story, even more than the Nickelodeon story. It is their story. That's what this is about. And uh, yeah, things that are other people are just starting to do today. You know, we're seeing these progressive pushes in media and it's amazing, but it's like they were already doing that 30 years ago and it worked. Look at it, you know, look at, look at how, how, um, Especially shows. I mean, when you bring up, hey, dude, salute your shorts, Pete and Pete, are you afraid of the dark? Hey, Arnold, when you bring those up, people are like, oh, my God, I love that show, you know, and to see, yeah, these are the people that made it possible. You know, it's really is really pretty special, you know. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, to, to speak to Adam's uh, point about the crowdfunding campaign, I wanted to touch on that really quickly, because <laughs> as I understand it, you all crowdfunded the film through Indiegogo. And on your YouTube channel, you have a really creative, really charming video that you all created for the campaign in which you all are recreating the yeah. classic shows like Salute Your Shorts and Pete and Pete and all of that. You make some pretty big promises in that initial pitch video <laughs> about how you plan to interview all the cast and the creators and all of that. So when you shot that video, did you have interviewees already lined up at that time or did you, that kind of happened after you got the phone? Yeah, none. We had no, no interviewees booked <laughs> at that. <laughs> so it really mind. is. You're I'm glad that you said that. Cause yeah, we make some pretty bold looking back at it. You know, we're like, wow, we promised a lot. And we had, you know, no inside. It's one thing if we knew somebody or we had an uncle that worked at Nickelodeon or we were friends with somebody. We had no connection to Nickelodeon at all. Uh, we just we were just were we just were confident that we could do it. We we felt good that we could do it. And there was a moment of after we got the money, we're like, oh, my God, what if we don't what if we can't book anybody? And we can't make this documentary. You know, what if we have to just kind of like interview like. What if we get like three people, you know, I, I hope there was this huge surge of like responsibility of like these people trusted us with their money. You know, that's amazing. I mean, for people to trust you. Um, so we hit the ground running, though. We really did. We after that crowdfund, we hit the ground running. And I, it's funny because I haven't watched that crowdfund video in a long time because uh, we've been working on the movie. And I just went back and watched it because now that our the film is getting out there, people are like liking our older videos. And it's like. I saw some people were getting liking that old one and commenting on um, the old videos. I think someone thought I might have been Pinsky or something. Um, and, <laughs> Dude, and so I always thought you looked like Blake Senna, man. Like always. I remember I thinking wish. that all the time, especially during the Orange Year. I mean, at the Orange Year, sorry. Salute your shorts. Like, and I then wish, whenever Rilo yeah. Kylie, which is a good thing. That's a compliment, it's a, man. Yeah, it's a huge. Yeah, that guy's awesome. But yeah, we we I was watching it and I was like, wow, we really we really went all in here saying we were going to interview these people, we were going to do that. And 
but we did. I mean, we 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 knew there was a huge responsibility, uh, and we we felt that responsibility from the very beginning. We knew that, like, wow, if we're the guys that get to tell this story, if we have that huge honor, we got to do a good job. We got to do a good job. So we immediately. We started booking those interviews. I mean, we just started calling people, calling people, calling people. If we could find their agent, we'd call their agent. Sometimes a publicist works better, so we call a publicist. If we could slide into their DMs, we'd slide into their DMs. Once we would get one person, we would go, oh, is there is there anybody you could connect us with? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll give you so-and-so's number. And so it it, it came pretty quick. Like once we, once we started booking the first few, like this, it got easier and easier and easier. Well, that, that process kind of led to some pretty high-profile interviews. I mean, you have Mark Summers, you have Kenan Thompson, Christine Taylor, Alan Goodman, Drake Bell, uh, even Geraldine Laybourne herself, the former network president. I mean, how, how big of an honor was that? Insanely huge. You know, it, yeah, it meant, it meant everything, right? That was the validation that, of the story. And, you know, to, to Geraldine's credit, she was so kind and supportive afterwards whenever we premiered the festival or the premiered at doc nyc uh premiered the film you know she had a a reunion and a party for us like where she invited us to be there and then we all walked i remember it was like snowing in new york and uh we walked all together to go see the film because we were only a couple blocks away and it just it meant so much because everybody there was really thankful and they would come to us and say, thanks for telling the story, which, you know, the, the irony of it is that it's like, you know, they don't have to thank us. It was, it was a privilege because they, you know, they are the ones that mm-hmm. deserve all the credit. And uh, yeah, that meant a lot. That was like really, I think the cherry on top because we had been really fortunate to get to interview a, a good amount of, uh, talent and uh, Nickelodeon icons, but whenever Jerry, you know, gave the seal of approval, uh, like Scott said, there was pressure for sure. But at the same time, when she, you know, the night of the festival, whenever somebody asked, like, "Well, can you talk about the story or whatever? Or what, in your opinion, is it?" and I remember Jerry was like, "That was that was it. Like, what you just saw is the story of Nickelodeon." Um, I mean, that wow. means that means everything, right? Because Crazy. she yeah. would know. It was crazy because it's like we're, we're getting to tell her story, right? So that anyone's going to be critical of when you're telling, like, hey, we're telling, like, some of your formative years. And then also on top of that, you've got the fact that it's Jerry Laybourne, who is, like, a genius, like, in media, you know? Like, she knows good stuff. That's, like, her specialty. So it was, like, a double, like, intimidation there. But she was always so supportive and so kind. And like Adam said, she threw a party. We invited her. We're like, oh, God, we got to invite, you know, we're going to invite Jerry. Um, it didn't feel right. Just us, you know, like, Jerry, you want to come to this <laughs> thing? And, um, and, 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 and she responded, yes, I'd, I'd love to come. And then, yeah, she threw a party for us at, at her, at her um, uh, apartment in Manhattan. And Fred Seibert and Alan Goodman, who are the two guys that created the uh, Nickelodeon logo, and they had created the MTV logo. Uh, we got to see those guys come together. It had been a while since they seen each other. Vanessa Coffey was there. We got to see her and Jerry Laybourne kind of see each other after a while. It was amazing. And and like you said, there are some high-profile people in this. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Geraldine Laybourne is super high-profile. After Nickelodeon, she was the president of the Disney Channel. She, then she co-founded the Oxygen Network with Oprah. Uh, Kenan Thompson, who's been on SNL for 20 years. 
uh, Ann Sweeney, who is now like one of the highest people at Netflix and was also a president of Disney Channel for a little while. There's an article that says Ann Sweeney, the most powerful woman in media. You know, you can read that out there. And then, uh, you know, Graham Yost, who went on to write Speed and Band of Brothers. And um, so, yeah, there are these people that that we were we thought that we would encounter more people who maybe didn't want to talk about that part of their career. You know, like we were just we were talking to uh, Danny Tamborelli and Michael C. Morona from Pete and Pete earlier today. And they were telling us a story about the guy from Sandlot, who if you if you say you're killing me, Smalls, he'll like fight you because he doesn't want to be remembered as Smalls. He wants to be remembered for other things. And I could, I think that that's fair. You know, if you're, it's something that you did like 30 years ago, maybe not to fight people, but to be frustrated, you know, with, with, uh, with that. But, and we thought we would, we would encounter that. And we never, ever, ever did. You know, everyone was, all these people like Keenan Thompson, Graham Yost, I mean, even someone like Danny Cooksey, who was Budnick on Salute Your Shorts who's gone on to have a prolific voice acting career. I mean, he was Montana Max on Tiny Toons, you know. Um, none of them were, like, shying away from talking about their career on Nickelodeon. None of them. They all were excited to talk about it. And I think that shows you how positive the environment was because none of them were like, no, nah, man, that's not me anymore. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I want to be taken seriously. I don't want to be known for that. They were all like, bring it on. Keenan Thompson was like, yeah, I, I want to talk about all that because that's where I learned – Every skill that I have, you know, for Saturday Night Live, that's where I learned it. Uh, you, you already touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to ask how you decided you would frame the story. Uh, specifically, were there certain things that you wanted to focus in on when shaping the film? And were there things you wanted to avoid entirely? Because if I'm being honest, you could make a full-length documentary about the creation of any single show touched upon here. So what was that process like? Yeah, so we, that was probably, I mean, that really probably was the, I think the most difficult outside of, uh, you know, credit to the team, the getting all the archival footage, I think is figuring out how we were going to approach the story in terms of its structure. Uh, luckily, Geraldine Laybourne, her exit like her entry and her exit kind of ended up serving as the the bookends of the film to a degree, right? And at that point in time, it's, you know, uh, whenever SpongeBob SquarePants and Dora the Explorer had started to, you know, I mean, like right around the time that they come into the, into the picture. And at that point, you've got your Mickey Mouse, right? You have the big enough, you're, you're not the underdog anymore. And so that was our story. Uh, we had talked about going a, a couple of different ways in terms of the structure, because the challenge is, is that we want to tell the story of Nickelodeon, how it grew, right? So you're kind of like, in a way, it's like you're taking people up this like roller coaster, right? So you're like elevating them. But at the same time, you want to stop so that we can make sure and take a look at these natural evolutions. And uh, And Scott can speak about it. But I think that the cool thing is, is that we ended up having kind of our, our pit stops or our, you know, additional destinations that came organically because as they continue to grow and they continue to have success, that provided them the opportunity to take on more challenges and, uh, yeah. and, and different types of programming that were more natural fits. Scott, Scott, um, like, like, you know, like he was asking, what was, do you think that was the hardest part about doing the structure for you? 
Yeah, it it was because we were we were we were covering I think covering so much ground in one documentary, twenty years essentially, was difficult, and we wanted to give all these shows their moment to shine. That was difficult, you know. We wanted every single show that was important to get its moment and not feel rushed, but you got to put them all in. And we so we ultimately we held true to the fact that it was the story of Nickelodeon. So the shows that kind of got more highlight were the shows that took Nickelodeon to another level. You know, like for example, Double Dare was the first show that they made themselves. Before that, they were licensing. So that we kind of take a pit stop there. You know, we're telling the story of Nickelodeon, and then we get to Double Dare, we kind of talk about Double Dare. And it kind of, luckily, it worked um, <laughs> um, almost chronologically. It, it naturally worked because all the shows kind of came about at the same time. Like all three of the Nicktoons all came about. Doug, Rugrats, Ren, and Stimpy all premiered on the exact same day. So it was real easy for us to go, okay, here's, here's that day, 1991, when all those three came out, and we could kind of talk about them. So, yeah, it was kind of difficult. There were certain times where we're like, you know, like, for example, where do we put Pete and Pete? Because it kind of started as a bumper back in the 80s, but then, okay, well, we'll, we'll kind of put it right here, you know, and then we talk about Snick. But, yeah, there were these amazing things that, that kind of all happened at the same time, you know, Jerry leaving – them finding their Mickey Mouse with SpongeBob and then, you know, Nickelodeon Studios closing down. That all kind of happened at the same time. So we just kind of got lucky and there, there, there kind of was a natural story arc there built into the actual literal history that happened. Finding the structure of a film is, is like putting the pieces of a puzzle together. So um, to, to kind of go forward from that, uh, Scott, you're, if I'm not mistaken, you're credited as, as a co-editor of the film. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, so I'd love to talk about the editing process because I want to know how many hours of footage you had to cull from the the archival footage that's seen in the film. Just, a lot of it was just like buried in my subconscious. I remember seeing it, but I hadn't seen it in years. Um, so I'd I'd love to hear you talk about that just a little bit. How you managed to get your hands on a lot of that footage, etc. Any way that we could. <laughs> uh, and you know, luckily, like documentaries, people are pretty forgiving for if it's low quality. You know, and especially because yeah. it's from the 80s, and I think that actually gives it a charm when it kind of looks yes. kind of old. So, I mean, the main ways um, were if we could, if it was on DVD or on streaming, we could, we would just get it that way. Uh, you know, Adam uh, had a really great connection with Vulcan Video, and so he was able to get a lot of the footage from from them. So they they had some of the shows. And then uh, we, we bought some rare VHSs from back in the day. There was actually a Double Dare behind the scenes, kind of like almost like a dock that was from like the 80s and we called Double Dare. I think, yeah, it was like Double Dare behind the scenes. And we got that. And then we got the, the Magic Johnson Nick News special. Um, and then we, we, would get on, we would get on YouTube. And if we could find somebody that was uploading cool clips <laughs> – uh, we would message them and say, hey, can I get the original VHS from you? Like a lot of that Nickelodeon Studios footage, people would post their vacation footage. We would ask that. And then also people that had old clips. You know, if someone had old clips, like um, we would just message them and be like, hey, can I borrow the actual <laughs> VHS for you? Um, and so we did that a lot. And then if we could just pull it down from YouTube, you know, we would do that. Uh, so, yeah, it was anywhere and everywhere we would get those clips. We also, we would reach out to all the show creators. That was actually probably the best, even above DVDs. If we could reach out to the show creator and say, 
can you give me the original, like the master tape that you have? And there were a couple that did it for us. Uh, there's a guy, Scott Webb, who's in our documentary. He was like Jerry's, one of Jerry's right-hand people. And he was responsible for a lot of those bumpers and commercials. Um, and he got us just a bevy of all of those old school bumpers. Because that was something we did want. We wanted something that, um, you know, that people hadn't seen. You know, that, that wasn't, we wanted to show all those old clips, but also if we could get our hands on any behind the scenes stuff, a lot of those old show, shows, they would have rap parties. Like they would make their own little rap party videos and we would get a hold of those uh, it, it, photos. Salute your shorts and hey, dude, both of those casts, they had all of these photos. Lisa Malamud gave us her whole like photo album. She was a writer on Hey, Dude. Uh, so we just took those. So, I mean, it was anywhere and everywhere that we could get. Uh, that archival because we knew we knew this documentary was going to need that that's that's what was going to yeah. make it come to life because it is it's a primarily it's a talking head interview d style documentary and those are great but you know when you don't have that you're not filming things happening now you know like someone getting their arm bitten off by a tiger or something like that you don't have that how do you keep it moving and we knew that those old shows uh, were going to be really important so we 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 just combed through anything and everything and then, I mean, I mean, the, every interview was an out. We sat down with everybody for an hour or two, you know, so it was just kind of going through all those, all the interviews and saying, okay, we kind of knew what our story was. Here's how we could piece it. And what's the sound bite that's going to get us from this one to this one. We just had to get really, really, really um, familiar with all the footage of what people said. And I think credit to, to Scott and, and Sean and Brad, like, uh, but you know, Scott, like the editing team is because that you have to walk this balance between showing footage that people are familiar with, right? Like that, that is going to awaken whatever, you know, like that, that, that spirit that you have where you're like, yes, I remember Zebo the clown or, oh my gosh, I remember super dude or whatever it may be while also making sure that you're providing new footage and keeping, you know, and that I don't think that that's easy to do for anybody, any type of editor, you know, editors get, don't get enough credit. That's, that's just the reality. And so, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, in the, we're nearing, you know, like in the mm -hmm. spirit of the holiday season, everything Thanksgiving and stuff, but it's like the editing I thought was just phenomenal. And so, yeah, Scott worked really, really hard on it. And there were a lot of people that helped out. And so, uh, that's cool. Like, I, I appreciate the fact that you're, that you're bringing that up, you know, because there are a lot of, yeah. uh, there are a lot, there are a lot of pieces of the film of film in general in filmmaking that don't, that don't get highlighted. So, you know, the people that do it well, and Scott certainly does, uh, I think that's really, that's cool. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Yeah, of course. I just wanted to mention it because the film feels comprehensive, but it moves at a really yeah. fast clip. It's 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 very satisfying to watch. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Uh, just out of curiosity, is there anything that on the cutting room floor that just killed you to get rid of? Lo yeah. <laughs> anything uh, in particular <laughs> that I, that you can share? Or? I'm sure we both have our our, our things that that we miss. I I know for me the one thing that that there was a chapter that you know because when you get into distributors what they want and everything like that and what makes your movie sellable and stuff you you have to listen to that and stuff and so we were really trying to hit you know under an hour uh, you know two hours more like you know nine between ninety and hundred and twenty minutes uh, but we had a section that was about Nick at night and I think that's so cool but ultimately that was more for the adults 
and it wasn't shows that they were making. We had already moved past the point where Nickelodeon was getting other shows, you know? So we kind of had to, to, to lose that, you know? Because it's like, do you shorten everything or do you just, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I learned early in editing someone taught me is it's easier to take out a whole subplot than to take out a bunch here and there because then the whole thing feels rushed. Whereas if you can take out a subplot that just isn't really necessary, it's a lot better. So we just ended up, you know, Nick at night. It, it's so cool, you know, but it, 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 it works without it, you know, it does. Yeah, I think there were some interviews that I would have, you know, I mean, everybody was so charming and they had su such great personalities. So it's like, the you know, the reality is if we had had the budget and who knows, I mean, maybe down the road, if we're lucky, we we do it like the, the reality. The, there was enough to do an entire miniseries realistically, right. Or a docu-series mm -hmm. because you could have spent an easy. entire episode. I mean, easy. And that's, and that's not even counting the, the, the stories that we didn't focus on. Right. You mm -hmm. know, it's like you talked to like, we, you know, are lucky enough to talk to Drake Bell and it's like Drake and Josh is one of the most iconic Nickelodeon shows ever. Right. Yeah. But it's just like Scott said, sometimes, you know, you have to, you just have to commit. And that's one of like, you know, filmmaking and storytelling 101 is you've got to kill your darlings. Right. And you have to be willing to do that. And so I, I agree with what I agree with what Scott said also is that Nick at night, the stuff that they did was so revolutionary and the way that they, the way that they promoted it was so cool. And I would have loved to have gone into that a little bit more because Scott Webb, uh, man, that guy's a genius. Like, yeah. but, but ultimately, you know, like, like, like Scott said, there, there is, uh, there, there are a lot of people whenever you're fortunate enough to get to make a film that they want certain things. And so ultimately you do have to do what's right, what's right for the film and what's right for yeah. the people that are helping you get it out there. Absolutely. I mean, the Orange Years, as as a film in and of itself, is kind of all about nostalgia. But Nick and Knight is like a different kind of nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. So kind of inserting that into into this film, it it might not have worked. Yeah. So I think you all made the right call on that one. But yeah. I still have very fond memories of watching Nick at Night, even though as a kid, like the shows weren't targeted or aimed at me. Right, um, right. But I still just have really fond memories watching some of those shows. You know, I, I do too. And and that was a big bonding thing between me and my mom, you know, uh, because those were the shows. It's essentially doing like what we're seeing now, how all these 80s shows are coming back for all of us parents. It was the same thing. Exactly. Where they were like, okay, we're in the 80s and 90s. So the parents were little kids back in the 50s. So let's play 50s shows. And I can remember watching like Dobie Gillis with my mom and – uh, shows like that, you know, and also Nickelodeon during the day, they did play some 50s shows during Nickelodeon, like um, Dennis the Menace and Lassie. Those were played during, uh, you know, during the day, during Nickelodeon proper. But yeah, like the Donna Reed show and the Mary Tyler Moore show. Like that's where I learned how, what a green screen was like or split. It, they did split screen. <laughs> but that's where I learned how to do that because I, I remember my mom explaining it to me like, oh, it's like they cut it down the middle and it was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So, yeah, I have such fond memories of Nick at Night. And I think it's, I mean, it, it, it also, it does show you how genius they were because they're like, crap, we got to fill up at nine o'clock. You just hear, beep, it's over. We got to do something, but we have no money. Oh, I know. Let's just play these old 50s shows that nobody else is trying to buy so we can get them for cheap. And all the parents who were watching Nickelodeon all day with their kids now get their time. And so it's still kind of wholesome. It's not like they're playing like, you know, 
Skinamax style stuff. It still fits the whole kids thing. So, I mean, that's genius. And one thing that Jerry Laybourne told us was, you know, Nickelodeon, when it's Nick at night, when it started, the first show that they would play was Mr. Ed. And the reason why they played Mr. Ed was just in case there were some kids that were still awake. It's a show about a talking horse, so they might like that. They might be into that, as opposed to a show like Dragnet or Dobie Gillis or something like that that's more like a kid's going to be like, wait, what? So, I mean, it just goes to show you every little thing they did was highly calculated. None of this, it looks, Nickelodeon looked like almost like a Jackson Pollock painting, like just like, you know, like you paint, you splattered all this stuff. So for us to go back and, and see that every little speck on there was like carefully, meticulously painted is really cool. Absolutely. And that's the kind of programming and marketing ingenuity that I think you all do a really good job of oh, thanks. Uh, paying, paying homage to or paying tribute to in this documentary, too, for sure. Um, in, the, in the research or in the interview process, and, I, and you don't have to give anything away necessarily of what's in the film, but um, is there something that you learned that surprised you the most? I, I I think I know I think I know what Scott what Scott's gonna say and I agree with them I don't want I don't want to take I don't want to take it and no and no go ahead go just, ahead go ahead no 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 no, no, no. you go first because I don't even know what I would say there I can't I I probably have said something in the past while he's deciding I like your orange shirt by the way oh thank you yeah yeah, yeah. it was entirely intentional <laughs> right. You know, there, there are some little things, some little surprises that I learned, like Jim Jenkins, who created Doug. Um, actually, I'll frame this as something bigger. There were so many people that did different things at Nickelodeon. They had almost like three or four lives at Nickelodeon. And I think that's kind of cool. Like, for example, Jim Jenkins is mainly known for being the creator of Doug. But years before, he worked on Nickelodeon's first show called Pinwheel. And that, that blew my mind. And then later on, he worked on Allegra's Window. And then Alan Goodman, who created the, the, the Nickelodeon uh, logo with Fred Seibert, he later on was a director on Clarissa Explains It All. And then later on went on to create the mystery files of Shelby Wu. You know, and then there was a guy named Jeffrey Darby, who he was the one that found You Can't Do That on Television uh, and cut it up. You Can't Do That on Television was a much different show in Canada. It had like musical guests and like live segments. And he was the one that brought it to America and cut it. And um, we didn't get to interview him for the doc. I wish we could have, but schedules didn't line up. But then he was later on like the, the original host of Double Dare. And then was also like a producer on Hey Dude. And then like David Bo- Vogler, who created GAC, also created the first Nickelodeon.com. So there's all these people that like did like wow. a bunch of different things that, that are kind of not connected, like creating a logo, creating a show, you know, or even Angela Santamero, like she was a researcher. She worked as a researcher where her whole thing was, you know, like she would take the shows and show them to kids and see what do you like? What do you not like? And then later on, she created Blue's Clues. So I think that's it is like people that had these like three or four different seemingly unconnected lives at Nickelodeon. They were super loyal. But Adam, what what, what was the one you were thinking of? I'm, I mean, I think the biggest one was about was kind of about the origins and Cube, right? Like I, I think oh, just yes. even I mean, we talked so today whenever we talked to, you know, when we talked to, um, you know, Danny Tamborelli and Michael Cimarona, you know, for like little Pete and Big Pete who have been so supportive, we talked to them and, you know. <laughs> I, I think anybody naturally 
based upon the fact that you can't do it on television, Are You Afraid of the Dark, 15, so many shows, like they got programming from Canada, you would assume that Nickelodeon got its origins there, right? But the reality is it was in Columbus, Ohio. And when we talked to Danny Tamborelli, he said that he was uh, playing a show. I think he was in either Cincinnati or Cleveland. And a guy walked up to him at the bar and was like, hey, man, you know, Nickelodeon got its start in Ohio. And Danny was like, no, I'm sorry, buddy. You're wrong. And he was like, no, I'm right, though. Like, it started here. I promise you. And Danny was like, understandably, was like, no, man, I uh, I think that I might have knowledge about that. Right. And so it's like we all you know what I mean? Like, because how would you know that possibly? Right. Yeah. It's like it's like going and talking to your parents and finding out, like, not just about like where they were born, but like where they moved everywhere. Right. Like yeah, you miss yeah. these important pieces of it. And so just the fact that even what they did now was I mean, what they did or what they did then, if you found a way to do that now, like, for example, um, you know, without giving too much away, but it's, in, you know, it's in the trailer is that they had like this interactive television, right? And this remote that you could press and play with, and it didn't work out. But that was a precursor to American Idol, to all of these, you know, uh, call in or, you know, text and, you know, make your vote. Uh, And uh, I think we heard today that if (laughs) someone was like, you know, if we could just figure out a way to do that without having cyber hacking, uh, voting in the election, presidential election and all of the local and national elections would be even higher. Right. And that was stuff that was happening like three, four decades ago. Yeah. And so it just speaks to them that even though it didn't work, they were onto something. And it shows like the innovative minds that uh, everybody at Nickelodeon and Cube also had. That, that was one of my favorite parts in a, in a weird way was the parts that I didn't have any nostalgia for. Like, like Adam talking about the, the cube, we had no idea what that was. You know, it was before it came out before we were even born, and it was only in Columbus, Ohio. We hadn't. We, there's no nostalgia there for us at all. So we had to. We we got to actually be like documentary filmmakers and do research and figure out all this stuff. And there was no preconceived notions. We we knew there was no preconceived notions because we didn't have any nostalgia for it. And the same with like the end. Cause like I didn't really watch all that or shows like that because like by like 1994 three or four, I was kind of done. We were both kind of like on to other things like MTV and stuff like that. So to get to learn about all that and Keenan and Kel was really fun. Like the fact that all that and Keenan and Kel were being filmed at literally the same time, like those dudes were busting their butts. That shows you where they, and now you see those guys to this very day, like Keenan Thompson, he's, he's doing Saturday Night Live. Most people can only hang on that show for like five years. And they're like, I wish I could stay, but I'm burnt out. That dude's been on there for 20 years. And he's always doing other stuff. Like, he's hosting, like, The Masked Singer. He's got a pilot coming out. He's doing all this stuff. Um, you know, it shows you that these guys had a hard, hardcore work ethic from, like, the time they were, like, little kids, you know? You mentioned how forward-thinking Nickelodeon was as a network. Um, quite, a, quite a few of the shows covered in the documentary are were for their time and still are pretty transgressive, you know, stuff that you hadn't been able to get away with on our children's network and, and probably stuff that you couldn't get away with on children's network today. So there's that aspect, but the network was also remarkably progressive as well. So it was transgressive and progressive as well. There's an immensely moving segment, which I had never seen of magic Johnson on Nick news. And that, that was just an amazing thing to, to, to witness 
So do, do you all remember that? And how did that make you feel? And also, looking at a 2020 lens, looking back, what do you think the impact of that was? You know, I remember when Magic Johnson uh, came out and said that he had uh, been diagnosed, you know, with HIV. And I, it was very, I, I think it was almost the same as whenever Rudy Gobert uh, of the Utah Jazz and when Tom Hanks came out and they said that they had um, uh, contracted the, the, the uh, COVID virus, right? Is that it made it very clear that it's like, okay, if that person who is larger than life can get it, then anybody can get it. And we need to listen up to that because the reality is, is that these important, the, these important issues need a figurehead to help explain it to people that may not have the information uh, or realistically want to listen, right, from other people. Because, you know, the reality is, is that if if Scott and I, it's it's one of the reasons that, you know, it's important, it was important for us not to be in the documentary, right? It's, it's something for us to go, hey, this is really cool. It's another thing for the people who lived it to be able to tell you about that, right? So for me, I don't remember, I remember the special being a thing I don't remember watching about it, but uh, watching it, but I do remember being aware at that point in time. And I think that more importantly also is that adults paid attention as well. Right. And so it inspired them to start having those conversations with children. Uh, and, you know, we've watched the film many times and that part still like, makes me tear up, you know, and, and still, uh, you know, occasionally cry realistically. And, uh, yeah, that part, I mean, mm. Scott can talk about it more also. Um, just that to me, I thought was amazing, amazing filmmaking, uh, that is lent to itself by an amazing decision and a very progressive and bold decision by Geraldine Laybourne and Nickelodeon and also credit to Magic Johnson, right? For taking on the responsibility because he very easily could have shirked that right or been embarrassed or whatever but he he did the right thing and by doing that um he helped a lot of people right like and, and saved a lot of lives yeah that that scene was so special and we knew that was going to be a big part of the movie you know because it's something that a lot of people don't remember they don't you know you remember pete and pete you remember hey dude but i think that that scene is the heart of the film because it th th that scene alone shows you how nickelodeon thought about kids you know linda ellerby starts that 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 scene off by saying uh it's it's we need to talk about safe sex on nickelodeon on a, on a kid's channel i mean wow you know and 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 to talk about HIV and AIDS and all the things they talked about on, on, on like the war the in the Gulf that was going on at the time and homelessness, the fact that they talked about that kind of stuff to kids and didn't try to make it cute, you know, didn't try to like make it like, oh, well, how are we going to talk about this to kids uh, the same way you would talk to an adult, you know? Um, and I think that that yeah, kids can. They can. Kids can tell when they're being pandered to. They absolutely can. And they can yeah. handle, you know, some big things. They're a lot more understanding and able to grasp big things than than a lot of times adults think that they can. 
And I love that scene. And I think a lot of times Nickelodeon gets a bad rap or I'm sorry, not Nickelodeon, Nick news gets a bad rap because we've been on all the Nickelodeon like forums, like the Reddit forums and the Facebook and uh, all that stuff for a long time. Even people didn't know that we were making this movie or anything. We just stayed on them. So we could kind of see what people were talking about and see what was going on. And people always like, I remember when Nick news would come on and that's when you'd turn it. So I'm excited for people to see this because I think it, it shows them that Nick News was kind of a, a hero. And I, I think it's sad looking through a 2020 lens that if that show were to come out now, it would be considered partisan. It would be considered to have a slant or a lean when it doesn't. And there wasn't. there. Nobody was saying, oh, this is has a slant this has a lean this is trying to pander to one party over the other one political party over the other it did it, it nobody thought that back then so that makes me sad you know that that we're in that kind of world now where if someone were to just come out and say the truth <laughs> um it would be considered having a slant <laughs> um but yeah I, I love that part and 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 there's the little girl in that scene is thriving to this very day she's still an advocate for HIV and AIDS awareness. And I think that Magic Johnson, talking about looking through things through a 2020 lens as well, like we have to be real. This was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And AIDS had this very wrong and very horrible and very offensive stigma as a gay disease, which is 100% erroneous. But that was the case. If you said you had AIDS, people were like, oh, you must be gay, you know, or something like that. It was a, it, that's what it was considered horrible. Um, and so for him, and there's a lot of misinformation on how it was transmitted. Yes, as well. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you got someone like Magic Johnson, who is the epitome of masculinity, you know, coming out and saying, I've got HIV. I think that 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 was a wake up call for a lot of people to uh, like Adam said, it saved lives. You know, it was a wake up call like, hey, man, if this guy can get it, I can absolutely get it. You know, and it, it, it really it enhanced the conversation. And really quickly, I agree with what Scott was saying. I, 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 this was, a, you know, this was also a time before the news ticker was a thing, right? Which I think kind of became uh, really popular around right after the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, because I remember specifically uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, different, different channels were showing you like, you know, like, here's the death toll, here's the death toll, this, this, and this. And, and so uh, now, just in general, right, like, so many, so, so much programming as well, you know, in news programming, but also just programming in general, you know, you hear about it all the time. It's like, oh, find the perfect quadrant film or the perfect quadrant story, right, so that you can get all of these different audiences in. And I don't think that that's what information or good storytelling should be about right there are there are heroes and there is accurate information and there are facts everywhere right and uh and uh, that's one thing that i think we were very lucky is at that time you know with like my brother and me or keenan and kel or all that or whatever um it's not to say that i believe in being colorblind right because i think that that is that's wrong, right? I think that we should embrace culture and heritages and, you know, re- and respect people based upon differences, right? And recognize there are differences and privilege and things like that. But when we talk to everybody in the story, one of the angles, and this would be kind of a miscut or a thing that, di- that didn't make the film. And I think this speaks to us hopefully being able to adapt. 
is that we wanted to talk a lot about the racial like progressiveness of the of the uh, network. But time and time again, whenever we spoke to talent there, they said they didn't see it like that because they just saw like a multicultural family. And so I think whenever you like, if you imagine like a utopia and I'm not trying to get like too, you know, like high level, but if you imagine like the way that like a society could hypothetically work, it would be everyone comes and has their place at the table and can speak and be leaders and have their voice and be lifted up like that, lifted up like that. Now I know that's not how it is, but with the Nickelodeon family, they talked about that a lot. And so when we would ask like Keenan and Kel, like, Hey, so talk about diversity, you know, like, and talk, cause Nickelodeon was ahead of its time, blah, blah, blah. They were like, I mean, I, I guess, right? Like we just didn't know because we were just treated as everybody was equals and we all loved each other. Right. Uh, and so, uh, that happening back then says a lot whenever you have, uh, and that's not to knock Disney and uh, Disney or anybody like that. But when you have John Boyega or you have other people that come out and they say, Hey, listen, like be true to the story. And if you really want to tell the story of a minority, tell the story of a minority and don't prop us up so that you can make money off of it. Right. That's something that's still being fought in addition to obviously bigger world issues as well. Uh, so that stands out a lot, right? Like that, that is something that I think Nickelodeon needs to be uh, applauded for. And it's something that we think about. And I think that we carry as filmmakers and storytellers. Uh, we keep that in our pockets and kind of in our hearts as we continue to move forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there was a, there was kind of a fanboy moment I had when for a very brief moment, Gullah Gullah Island is featured yeah. in, in the documentary. And uh, I mean, talk about a show that teaches, you know, kindness and positivity and inclusion and diversity without being pandering. And totally. um, that, that was, that was a show as, as are so many shows that I watched on Nickelodeon th- that shaped me as a person. So I think your documentary is kind of like this, just like slime covered love letter to, <laughs> to um, the, the creators and also the fans you have, mo- you know, during the credits at the end, just really great tribute to fans of Nickelodeon. And so um, I think this, this film is really something special. So I really hope people check it out um, to close everything out. <laughs> I want to ask you, cause I'm a big horror fan and this was a gateway show for me. Same. Uh, what, what is your favorite? Are you afraid of the dark episode and why? <laughs> each yeah. of you yeah scott do you want to go first you go first um i love the tell of laughing in the dark uh because uh, zebo is amazing and uh i'm blanking on his name but the guy who plays dr vink right like there's this recurring he's like the like the carnival barker basically he plays this character over and over and over again it, like different characters throughout the series and he does such a good job of being this like like in that one, especially like creepy old man, which I think kind of speaks to where everybody felt when they were that age, yeah. you know, is like, which, which is what Nickelodeon was, uh, was about, right? Is that we were in a safe space and this is like the kids playground and our carnival. Uh, I also just, you know, naturally like, you know, you think about it um, or the terrifier or a lot of other uh, movies, you know, clowns just naturally, although some get a bad rap, uh, they're just, terrifying right uh yeah i love to tell and we still talk about it all the time like scott and i still watch are you afraid of the dark and yeah we'll talk about yeah 
we talk about Zebo, Zebo all the time, Zebo the clown. That's a great episode. It's so hard. And and so here's a little bit of me contradicting myself because in the past I've said uh, Tale of the Twisted Claw because that's the but I think that's because that's the first episode that me and Adam watched. That episode came out way before the other ones. It was like the pilot episode. But I think I'm going to change my mind here. And I'm going to say The Tale of the Midnight Madness. Because that's the one where it also has Dr. Vink. And it's where these kids, I loved yeah. it, these kids run this old theater. That's kind of cool. Like, I love theaters that play weird movies that, you know, like Alamo Drafthouse and stuff like that. How they'll play, like, not just whatever the blockbuster is, but how these. And maybe that's where that love started because they were playing these old movies. And it's also where I first found out about Nosferatu because... That you know, Nosferatu right. comes alive and comes out of the uh, out of the, the the out of the screen in that one. So I think that one gave me a love for like old horror films. Uh, and then Nosferatu, that uh, that a character that looks like that is on um, the the um, what what you what what we do in the shadows, you know. So it's like that character has always been something I've really liked. So I'm gonna say, Tale of the Midnight Madness is my favorite. Those are those are great picks. What, what about, about you? you? Oh man, um, the tale of the night shift made a big impression. Yeah, on me as a kid, uh, that that image of that vampire still burned into my brain, practically burned, buried into my subconscious. Yeah, um, and um, I, I think this documentary does such a great job of ha- ha- having a feeling of rediscovery as you're watching mm. it. But also just, again, such a great love letter to the fans. At the end of the movie, it's kind of you all saying, this is for you. And I just really love that. So uh, what's next for you all? Do you have any upcoming projects to hype us up for? I mean, for right now, um, we're just really trying to give this a final push out there. You know, we're, yeah. we're doing a lot of exciting things on our Instagram, you know, because we've got a bunch of signed stuff. Like we got a bunch of people would give us Nickelodeon swag and we would get it signed by people. So uh, we're having we're having so much fun now that it's it you know it came out this past week and we're just having fun like promoting it and that's that's a jo- another job you know but like like all the other jobs we've had on this film it's really fun yeah for sure I would say you know right now the the what's up next is for the entire holiday season like uh, us just working to say thank you to everybody right because I think you know I think that that's the best way to describe it I think you hit it you know uh, out of the park is is that this is a, a slime covered love letter and a thank you to the <laughs> people that made it to made Nickelodeon but a thanks to the fans because you know like we're we're all fans and we're all we're all friends and and so, yeah, like all of this cool stuff that was, you know, given to us and signed, we want to give that out, you know, like we want the fans to, to have it because they deserve it, uh, you know. And so, yeah, that's really the next step. And then, you know, there will definitely be stories down, you know, down the line. But right now it's it's about um, making sure that the story uh, continues to get told by other people and gets to be shared with the, with the community and the Nickelodeon family that created it. Wonderful. Well, the orange years, the Nickelodeon story is available to rent or buy on iTunes, Amazon, Vudu, Google play, pretty much wherever you shop for digital movies. Yeah. Uh, And for you lovers of physical media out there, it's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. So Scott, Adam, thank you again for your time. It really was a thrill having you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. This was amazing. Yeah, and we'll make sure and continue to listen. uh, And uh, yeah, stay orange. It doesn't matter where you are, when they come out and let you are.
Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon.